0: Uh, friends a very good evening to you and a warm welcome to Samaris as we once again are given the great opportunity to gather around God's Word and this evening we'll be looking at the Old Testament passage as we uh, continue with our series from Genesis uh, chapter 38 on pages 37 and 38 of the Church Bible and at the center of your uh, church bulletin you will find um, a sermon outline Uh, That might uh, be useful to guide us as we uh, do our reflection on this passage Under the theme God's sovereign grace and choice in spite of human sinfulness And as we begin uh, Let me lead us in a word of prayer Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together uh, That you have given to us together on your word. We pray that you will teach us through this story of Judah, how your will and plan for us uh, as well cannot be thwarted. for you are always and completely in sovereign control. And Lord, now as I speak, please help me to remain true and faithful to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now friends, I do not want to uh, close uh, the day for you by being a little bit morbid. But I need to tell you this, I find uh, obituaries uh, in our local newspapers amazing and completely uh, informative. There was a a recent obituary of a 90-year-old man that took a whole page in the national newspaper. And in it, it listed down all the names, including those who were passed on, of all those directly related to the person biologically or through marriage. This particular one had descendants' names right up to the fourth generation. What a massive family he left behind. Every loved one or unloved one, as the case might be, was included for the sake of posterity so that the reader, knowing a name in that list, will be able to work out for himself or herself the part that this guy who has, gone, who has passed on uh, played in the whole fabric of the family. Now, friends, do not get me wrong. I'm not voting against impressive obituaries. In fact, I find them very informative, as I mentioned before, and uh, something that we can work uh, some details from and actually get some uh, uh, additional type of uh, you know, information. And actually, when you look at obituaries, you are reminded that actually the Bible itself presents persons or families in even greater detail in even greater uh, intricacy this is to ensure that there is no mistake of identification particularly so when it comes uh, to the patriarchal families or the founding families of the 12 tribes of israel which will go on to form the people of god in the bible identification identification of the people or his family is linked directly to the role that he would play or his family would play in God's sovereign plan for the world. Last week, we saw the story of Joseph in chapter 37, the beginnings of the story of Joseph. And we were wondering how Joseph was going to cope with being sold as a slave to Egypt. But here, instead of uh, developing um, the, uh, uh, the story of Joseph in the normal, intricate uh, detail, we have here, in Chapter 38, narrative about Judah instead, who in the previous Chapter 37 uh, instigated his brothers to sell Joseph to the slave traders. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Why is the story of Judah here? The answer which we shall find later in Genesis is that while Joseph will go on to play a crucial role in in preserving Israel It will not be from his family line that God uh, that the kings of Israel would be would be uh, born from or From which God will send a savior to save the world Yes in his life In accordance to the two dreams given to him, Joseph's brothers and his parents would really bow to him as he became the viceroy of Egypt, a great and powerful man. But in reality, his family will not form the line from which the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, will be born from. It will be from Judah's line. The Bible places the story of Judah here, to refocus, to redirect our attention back to that promise, the patriarchal promise that God has made to Abraham in Genesis 12. So now please turn with me to page 37 uh, at the bottom on the right-hand column uh, to Genesis 38. As we consider the beginnings of Judah's family line from verses 1 uh, to 11, and right from the beginning you will see from verses 1 and 2 judah continued in a manner that is unworthy of a patriarch. in these two short um, verses you will see that he left his ancestral home in hebron where his father jacob was and his brothers were he went to live among the Canaanites, joining his good friend or bad friend if you like to live in adulam about 20 kilometers northwest of Hebron, uh, halfway between Hebron and uh, Jerusalem. He married a Canaanite woman to crown it all. And we read in verse 3 that from this union, Judah had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. So Judah's family began on a very strong foundation. Despite his rather uh, unworthy behavior, God has blessed him with three sons. And uh, when we come to verse six, we find that suddenly, the narrative has jumped at least 17 years, even though the Bible is silent about this. Because in ancient Near Near Eastern uh, traditions, a boy would be considered old enough at the age of 17 to start his own family. And so, in verse six, you see Judah took a wife, Tamar, for his eldest son Er. Now, interestingly, Er's wickedness is not detailed out. We were just told that God put him to death. Perhaps we might be reading more into this. But in the only three times the word "wicked" has been used in the Old Testament before this, it has been used to describe the sin. Of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as I said, maybe we shouldn't make uh, too strong a connection between here and there. So now, what happened? Judah's eldest son is dead. He doesn't have a grandson uh, from this marriage. So what is he going to do? A Judah fall back, fell back onto an ancient Near Eastern mandatory custom called the Leverite marriage. Let me explain the liverite marriage as where, was where a surviving brother must fulfill the responsibility of fathering a child, an heir, to the deceased brother through the deceased brother's wife. This custom was very important in ancient times from two two perspectives. Firstly, from the woman's or wife's perspective. As since inheritance was passed down from the male's side, a man who died without an heir would leave any family that he might have had with his wife without the protection of inheritance. In other words, without any means of future livelihood. That was the important thing from the female perspective. Secondly, from the male's perspective, it is a more simple thing. It is just so that his name can be perpetuated, his family line can be perpetuated. Recognizing this, nearly 500 years later in Deuteronomy 25, this custom would be written down for the Israelite nation to follow. We can find this in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6 on page 198. Uh, Let me just read it to you. It says here, Her her husband's brother shall go in to her and marry her and fulfill the the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. See, the Bible does provides for the continuation of the dead man's line through his brother and his surviving wife. Now back to our passage uh, on verse 8. Verse 8, Judah applied this um, formula on his, on his son, his second son Onan. Onan, go and marry your sister-in-law, Tama, in accordance with this mandatory custom, so to speak. And Onan, while not refusing the physical intimacy with Tama, however, refused to give his seed to her, but wasted all of it on the ground. Onan did not want any son by Tama to deprive him of the additional inheritance that he would have if Tama remained childless or without an heir and we see that the lord deemed this act to be wicked and therefore put onan to death as well now you we have this big disaster now for judah first son died second son died what does he do what will he do well we read in verse 11 in that short little passage that he did three miserable things firstly he believed that tamar was the cause of his two sons death the zings. In the family so to speak rather than their death was the uh, uh, punishment from God for evil doings secondly he deceived Tamar that he would give his last son Sheila to her in marriage when he came of age which he had absolutely no intention of doing and thirdly he sent her back to her father without releasing her from the marriage bond to his family this we know because he commanded her to remain a widow. And now when we move from verse 11 to the next part of our passage from 12 to 23, we see the focus of the passage shifting from Judah to Tamar and we have a question that we need to ask ourselves and, and hopefully the passage can help us to find the answer to Was Tamar faithful or was Tamar sinful? Now again, the Bible is very uh, quiet about this. It just says in verse twelve, Judah's wife, who remained unnamed, died. He just mentioned the Bible just mentioned in the course of time. But when we work through how Joseph's lives intersected with that of his family, particularly those of his fam- uh, his brothers, the events of thirty-eight verses one to twelve had occurred over a period of at least. 20 years since Joseph was sold as a slave to Egypt. And Judah, during these two decades, had apparently remained on very good terms with Hera, the Adullamite. We know this because the first thing he did after his mourning for his wife's death was to go up to Timnah for the sharing of his sheep with his friend, Hera. Now Timnah belonged to a cluster of villages nearby Adullam, Around which Judah appeared to have prospered, and after leaving Hebron. Just a few things about this ship shearing. Ship sharing season was also the season for the gathering in of the harvests. It was also the Canaanite season for feasting and merrymaking because there was plenty of work to do, money was there, people get their wages, so it was a season for feasting and merrymaking. And this coincided with the idolatrous fertility rites of the time. Now, as we have seen, Judah having lived in, in Canaan for about 20 years, and coming out of his morning, was ripe and ready to enjoy himself. And we see that when Tamar heard about it in verse 13, she was not very happy with Judah. For he had failed to live up to his word to give her his third son in marriage when he was old enough. And now Judah was heading north to enjoy himself, sparing no thought for the future of the widow of his dead sons. So he set a trap for him. Let me read verses 14 to 16 uh, for you. Uh, Tamar took off her widow's cloak, garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned in to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? You see, Judah thought Tamar was one of the cow prostitutes participating in the fertility rites. And he will go on to offer a goat to sleep with her. And she agreed. Particularly verse 17, is very revealing. Let me read it. And Judah answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. Now, Judah did not have a goat available to pay tamah immediately. This is very surprising uh, because sheep would be kept together with goats. Because goats are more hardy, they're able to graze on poorer ground. So they will be, uh, they will be sent to grounds that sheep cannot graze, uh, and they will also be sent into grounds that have already been grazed by sheep, so that they can get, uh, maximize the, uh, the use of pasture ground that is available in Palestine at this time. We can therefore expect that Judah would have many, many of these animals, both of these types of animals available in Timnah. And that was why Tama set a trap for him. He waited two or three kilometers south of Timnah at a place called Inaim so that he can, she can sort of waylay the, the father-in-law. Because she knew Judah's impatience, he would not wait for the goat to be sent for and received from Timnah. And she could, therefore, easily get him to pledge something that is very personal and very recognisable. So a deal was struck. And Judah pledged that he would send the goat and left Tamar with three items. Uh, his signet or the seal that is tied to a cord and hung around his neck, very distinctive of him. This is where the agreement will be made and he will just uh, stick his steel uh, and, and seal the agreement. That's very distinctive of him. And the staff, a very distinctive staff that he carried around with him all the time. And so Judah committed unknowingly an adulterous and incestuous act with his daughter-in-law. And she conceived a child by him. And in verse 20, we found that Tamar was no way to be found when Judah sent the goat that he had promised. But Judah's main concern was not to look for it and get the, the things back. His main concern was that he would not become a laughingstock to the cluster of villages uh, that he lived among. So back to our question. Was Tama being sinful in, dece- in deceiving her father-in-law? Well, in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter one, verses one to the first part of 6 uh, to the first part of verse six, we see that the Bible actually vindicated Tama. She was placed on the family roll of honour, so to speak. The family line from which the Christ, the saviour of the world, would come. Amazingly, her name was listed as the first one of three Gentile women, not of Israelite origin, who are thus honoured in Jesus' genealogy. The other two names are, as we read just now, Rehab, The Canaanite prostitute in Jericho And Ruth, the Moabite widow who chose to return to Bethlehem with Naomi, her mother-in-law To follow in the way of the Lord And who then became the great-grandmother of King David Again, we see here the sovereign hand of God Choosing sinful people to fulfill His plans to save His people It's very clear in our passage that Tamar acted in frustration and anger against Judah. And yet, in this sinful act of deception, she showed that she wanted to bear a child, an heir from the line of Judah, so that she might propagate the family line. She didn't know that he had been chosen to be the forebear of the Savior, but her faithfulness to Judah's line ensured her a place in the genealogy of Jesus. So we move on to the last part of our passage, the continuation of Judah's family line. Let me read 24 to you, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And, Jesus said, bring her, and Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. This is a severe punishment indeed. The severe punishment for adultery is not only to be burned, but be stoned to death first. And whether you die or you don't die, you are taken out and then you are burned. And we see this is a terrible. This was a terrible punishment at that time. But we read further that this thing did not happen to her because she pledged a trump card then. She sent the tokens that Judah had pledged three months ago to him. He said in verse 25, Please identify these things, whose they are. The signet, the court, and the staff. And Judah's response was an immediate admission of his own wrongdoing, which should better be translated as, She is the righteous one, not I, for I did not give. She is the righteous one, not I, for I did not give her to my son Sheila. Although the Bible will go on in Leviticus to make incest punishable by death. It appeared that at this present particular time, it was accepted among the Canaanites for the father of his son's widow, the father and heir by her knowingly, and therefore no punishment was necessary. But something very interesting, Judah did not commit incestuous relations knowingly again with Tamar. We read at the end of verse 26, he did not know her, again and so just let us sweep up some final details regarding the continuation of the family line Uh, twins were born to Tama and Judah the younger twin came up first his name was Perez and he was listed as an ancestor of the Savior of the world Jesus Christ our Lord the precursor to the Kings of Israel so in conclusion friends what can we bring home with us this evening well, first of all, we see very clearly God's sovereign choice of Judah's line. Well, why didn't God choose Joseph? After all, he has given him two dreams about his brothers bowing down to him, about his father and mother bowing down to him. But we see that later in Genesis 49, that Joseph would not be the family line through which the kings of Israel will come and through which the savior of the world will be born. God, indeed, will choose him, but for some other important task to save the whole family of Israel. Why choose Judah? After all, he was only the fourth son. And We know that from uh, Genesis 35, that Reuben, the firstborn, was disqualified because he defiled the marriage bed of his father Jacob by sleeping with his stepmother, Bilhah. Simeon and Levi, the second and the third son, They were also disqualified in Genesis 34, not only because they committed murder by killing the family of the people who ravished their sister Dina, but because they desecrated the sacred circumcision rites of admission to Israel. You can read up all these details for yourself. Both, number one, number two, number three, they were all disqualified, and Judah was the fourth son, the next eldest. Then we come to Tamar. Why choose Tamar? She chose to trick Judah into fathering descendants for her husband. And yet, as recognized by Judah himself, through her faithfulness to God's chosen people, he was deemed the righteous one. Again, it was God's sovereign selection and choice. The second thing that we can bring back with us is to see God's sovereign hand changing sinful Judah and molding him. We may argue that although Judah was next in line, that did not automatically qualify him to be the Savior's ancestor. Yes, that's true. It was clearly God's sovereign choice. But starting from verse 26 of our chapter, Judah was changed as he recognized his own unworthiness even when he, it was compared to the trickery of Tamar. And he did not touch Tamar again. Here in chapter 38, we see the transition of Judah from an impetuous, sinful man living the idolatrous Canaanite life to one who would take the leadership role of God's people, the family of Israel. Later in Genesis, Judah would be commissioned by his father Jacob to lead the family delegation to Egypt. And he would place his own life in Egypt um, in in line for his youngest brother, Benjamin. God would mold him and make him a truly worthy ancestor for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Judah, we see how God's sovereign grace was given freely as he chose an unworthy man to fulfill his particular role in the salvation of the world. What is the third thing? The third thing is actually an application for us. It's for us to recognize that there is no sin so great that God cannot forgive us as long as we are willing to repent and return to Him. For some of us, we may still be struggling as we try to choose a life, to lead a more worthy life but continue to live an unworthy life, whether in church life or in our private lives or in our professional lives. Some of us may have chosen to live on the sidelines of God's family, the church, unwilling to participate in the roles we may be called upon to fulfill no matter how suitable or how qualified we are Others of us may not be comfortable to learn more about our own faith Thinking that that will take us from those uh, things that we love to do more Still others may find it uncomfortable to spread the word of the grace of God through his son Jesus Christ to evangelize in other words and some of us in our personal lives may still be struggling struggling with some personal sin deeming ourselves unworthy to appear before the presence of the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and seek a new life in his spirit but whatever it may be friends we can draw great comfort from Judas example as long as we are willing to be changed by God allowing ourselves to be remodeled to be re, 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 uh, uh, changed from what we were to what we are and to what he would want us to be this passage allows us a relook at ourselves allow us the confidence to trust in god in his goodness and depend on his strength to lead the left to lead the life that he wants us to live friends knowing our weakness is good But we must complement this by trusting in His grace to forgive us, even sins that seem unforgivable to us ourselves. For we are not God, and we must trust that this is the God who makes all things for the good of those who love Him. We must trust this God who loves us so much that He sent His only Son to die so that we may inherit life, inherit eternal life, trusting in Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story, the narrative of Judah. We thank you for the timely reminder that we are all sinful, but that in spite of all our sinfulness, you have chosen sinful people to perform the roles that you have planned for them to do. And we pray for your strength. We pray for the strength of your spirit to hold on tightly to you and to uh, depend on you, uh, to change us, to mold us so that we are able to do what you want us to do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.